Welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. We are about to embark on our journey of part two of the big band era. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So welcome back, everyone, to the Music History Project, uh, part two of Big Band Era. Two weeks ago, we started this podcast series talking about the overview, the arrangers, and the songwriters of the Big Band Era. We heard from John Tumpak, Sammy Nestico, Billy May, and Dick Jurgens. And this episode, part two, we're going to be hearing about the sidemen, band leaders, and the singers. So, Michelle... What's up first? First up is Sidemen Jonah Jones. He was a trumpet player and has some amazing stories about his time in the big band. He's also the namesake for your son, Dan. That's right, he is. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> well, Jonah was an amazing guy. He was born in 1909 and sort of the, the perfect time to craft his uh, ability as a trumpet player for the emerging big band era. And he played with some of the greats. He played His first gig was in 1932 with a guy who played jazz violin. You don't hear that too often. His name was Stuff Smith. Anybody named Stuff has got to play jazz violin. I, I don't know. Um, Jimmy Lunsford, Benny Carter, um, and of course his his long gig with uh, the Cab Calloway Orchestra. And most of Cab's biggest hits, you can hear Jonah playing a trumpet solo. Uh, Minnie the Moocher, the Heidi Ho Man, all those great songs. Um, very compelling amazing guy and then um, after the big band era was over Jonah had a series of records first with uh, Capital Columbia and then he actually uh, had a contract with Motown for a while and recorded these amazingly popular million selling along playing albums that had a theme to them some of them were like hits of Broadway and things like that and one of them was called Muted Jazz which was a million seller he did another one that was the very first jazz record to win a Grammy in 1960 called I Dig Chicks. <laughs> and if you want to have a little chuckle, you've got to look up on, on the internet the album cover called I Dig Chicks. It's this uh, one of those cranes that digs holes in the ground with <laughs> women standing all around it. It was great. Uh, <laughs> Jonah was a wonderful guy, and um, I'm looking forward to you falling in love with him like I did, just listening to his stories, um, how, how wonderful it was to, to uh, learn from him. I mean, he knew Earl Father Hines in the early days and Duke Ellington. Uh, Louis Armstrong gave him the mouthpiece that he played for many years. Uh, it was just, you know, he was there. He was in it. And um, I think he's a great representation of the sidemen that made up the big band era. And within that time, many of the sidemen were, it was kind of like 
baseball players. You know, you kind of knew who the players were. Maybe you couldn't name all of them on the team, but you certainly knew the guys in the infield. You know, you knew the first trumpet player, uh, you know, Ziggy Elman for Benny Goodman, for example. Uh, You know, those were names that everybody knew. And I think it's so great that, Michelle, when you put this podcast together, uh, we get to start with uh, the Sidemen because, of course, they were the ones who made up the band, but oftentimes not the band leader. You know, you didn't necessarily hear these guys' names uh, as much as you heard Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller, but they certainly were a major part of the sound. And um, and imagine the many stories they had. So I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to interview people like Milt Hinton and Jonah. And so I guess... What are we going to be hearing about from Jonah? We're going to be hearing a little bit about um, just his working history. This is one of a ton of interviews with Jonah Jones <laughs> that we have in the collection, as well as one out of a ton of interviews we have with Sidemen. So, Mike, if somebody were to try and look up any of the other interviews, where would they go? They would head over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library, and then click on the advanced search. You can search through all of our tags there. Um, they're all going to be under audio only. You can also use the big band tag, and you'll find them all there. Speaking of baseball, boy, you teed that up <laughs> right out of the park. Nice. <laughs> so go ahead and sit back, relax, listen to Jonah Jones. What were some of the um, the, the songs you enjoyed uh, performing with uh, with Cab? Well, the main one I liked that was uh, because uh, I didn't pay too much attention to the other stuff that, but, uh, that he played, but because uh, we was backing up mostly, and uh, mostly the number that we had was the opening number, and uh, that I didn't have a solo in that. For, uh, I think Chew had the solos, and uh, that went on for oh, uh, for the whole for maybe two or three years, you know, while it's got the same show. And maybe sometimes uh, uh, they would change the number when they would change the show or something. And, uh, but we uh, got a, a arranger, and I forget the first arranger's name, but he left after a couple of years I was there, and then they got another called Buster Hardy. And Buster said, uh, yeah, he said, why don't you let me make a number for John? So he said, okay, make one for so he made a number called Jonah Johns the Cab. And it was like, here comes Jonah blowing on his trumpet. And the band said, da, 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 dig this cat. He's going to play some fine jazz. And he'd be doing it. And uh, I heard one of the guys then I say, damn, I ain't never heard him call nobody's name in here before. You got somebody in the back band in, in the in the band because I, I would go down in front and play about six courses. Huh. Yeah, about six courses, six blues courses, you know, in different keys. I'd play and start out one key and go up into another key and go out a half a tone high and a half a tone high, you know, six times. And uh, I thought it was so nice for me to get to go to class. I hadn't seen nobody go down front at that time, you know, while I was there until a few until I did that, then finally he let he would let me do that for about six months, and he let Hilton Jefferson come down 
and play sophisticated lady. And let him do that for about six months, you know. I was in the, in the middle of the show. And I think he would, yeah, at that time, he would uh, feature us. He didn't feature nobody much before before that, you know, and call their name out of the band. Right. Well, he had so many different uh, acts in there. He had the uh, tap dancers, and he had singers like, oh, Sister Rosella Tharp, and he had, and she takes a sick, then he got Pearl Bailey in there, was a singer. Then, uh, and then had comedians and something in there, you know, and uh, then they had the Cotton Club boys, the Cotton Club girls, there was so much stuff in the show, there wasn't hardly no place in there for one of the musicians in order to uh, be featured. Right. But after I was in there, and uh, he started off with me, he started off, and here comes Jonah blowing on his trumpet. And uh, I thought that was so nice, and there was a couple of other things he let me do. Let me sing, and uh, let me sing it myself and play it, you know. And, uh, was uh, very happy uh, working with him sounds for like, 11 months. Sounds like a fun time. Oh, yeah. I went back to, to the place. Uh, then when he cut the band down to seven pieces, uh -huh. why well, then I was the uh, only trumpet player that he, he kept. Of course, Diz was gone then. Diz was gone. And I, uh, I think we had... Uh, yeah, got, then we cut, we cut it down, and he only had two sacks left, two, and uh, had that uh, had a tenor and alto, and a rhythm section. And uh, then he put the band back up again, and then he built it up to we had about five trumpets. We had uh, a guy named Paul Webster on trumpet, very high notes, and Russell Smith, and... Uh, Chad Collins on trumpet. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. And another, and me, and four, and a guy that uh, was out of Indianapolis. Can't think of his name now. I had five trumpets and uh, uh, four trombones, and he used to have three, and he had four, Tyree Glenn and uh, Quentin Jackson. Well, I, I'm wondering, Jonah, if you could tell me a little bit about the uh, the famous um, spitball incident that got Dizzy out of the band. Oh, well, that was... See, when I got there, I was very quiet because I had been in the band like that before. But this was, was young and wild. He was a little on the wild side, but uh, he knew he had to stay a little cool, too, because he knew that cab was in line a whole lot of... A can on, but when I got that, Dizzy used to, and we start playing. Why, uh, when we in the, at the show, it'd be eleven o'clock in the morning or something like that. The first show, and he and he'd be rolling up these spitballs and putting them in his derby, and uh, cab would go off like two or three times to change clothes. He'd first come out in all white clothes, all white shoes, white. Uh, tuxedo, white necktie, white uh, shirt, and then one of the comedians would come out or something, then he'd go off, and he'd come back with all blue, all powdered blue shirts, powdered blue shoes and everything. Then something else would come on while he didn't have to direct. 
he would go off and he'd come back with all tan. He used to change three, at least three times a show. And when he go off, just to start shooting these paper awards, and uh, uh, at the trombone players, and the different guy, maybe a guy be down front, he'd be shooting at him. And, uh, so a cat would come out there and he'd see him sometime on the floor, and he never said nothing. And uh, other little things that Diz uh, used to do called, uh, uh, he had a number one called the Jim Jam Jump is Jumping Jive. Makes you get your kicks on the other side. Help, help. And when it would say, Tyree would, uh, uh, Cab would be up front singing that. Look at the audience. And Tyree, the trombone player in front of us, would get up and shake his butt, and Dibs would take his belt off and hit him on the butt with it, you know. <laughs> and Cab could never see it. He'd never see that because he would be looking out front, you know, at the audience. But he used to count uh, things like that. Then, pretty soon, I got so, just to keep active doing something, setting up down the stage, I got so, I started rolling up the paperboard along with him and started shooting them too. And then Cab come out one day was playing in Connecticut. And Cab was kind of upset about something, I guess. And so he come out and he said, I'm getting tired of this. He on stage and said, Shooting them, throwing paperwork, balls and stuff all the time. Sit down. Don't you never get tired of that? Down. Don't you This was at the end of the show, and of course, girls and things were dancing, so he was arguing, and he was standing in front of the band, and they was arguing back at each other. So finally, when the curtain come down, he started around back after uh, this, and this jumped off at him, so the guys in the saxophone the section, they all grabbed the cab and held him and we grabbed this and said, well, look, just tell him don't do it no more, you know, and uh, all that, but uh, uh, then uh, let him alone, then he went towards his room and Diz, uh, we, uh, we turned Diz loose and he run, turned him loose and he run and kind of cut cab on his hand. So he kind of cut him on his hand and uh, with a knife, and uh, he fired him. You threw him, put him out. So then I told Diz, I said, well, but well, we were friends, and Diz was hang out together sometimes I was, to hear different bands being in town. And uh, I told him, I said, well, let me talk to him. I'm going to tell him it was me throwing the paper, spitballs. I said, maybe he will. You know, I said, because I got another job. Charlie Barnett had been calling me to join his band. And, he, and he, I think it was in Chicago then. So I told this, I said, wait a minute. Let me go in here. I said, because I'll tell him with me. Doing. So he said, yeah, well, maybe I went into the office. I thought, well, maybe it was you, he said. But uh, I seen this when he was had that rubber. When I come to the wing, and I looked at the wing, I was just standing there. With that rubber and pull him back into it with that spitball, let me go. So I seen him do it. He's been doing it before too. See, but uh, and I'm tired of that. See. I don't want that in my band. So then I went and told this. I said, well, I can't get it straight. I said, but tomorrow uh, I'm gonna 
call Taliban in because he needs Trump. He wants another Trump friend. I said, so I'll call him and tell him uh, about you, you know. So uh, the next day I did, I called. When we come back to New York, yeah, I called Taliban in. They show you how fast things get around. I said, Charlie, uh, I can't make it. I said, but I got a man, I got a good Trump affair here for you. So he said, what's his name? I said, Dizzy Glisson. He said, that's the guy with cut cab, ain't he? I said, yeah, he said, I don't want him in my band. He said, I don't want him with me there. So I couldn't get this over there because <laughs> that fast. That was a Sunday night that happened. And that Monday, why, uh, I called Tyler and he said, no. I, I said to myself, damn, I wonder how I got to Chicago that fast. You know, and we was in Connecticut when that happened. <laughs> But I think Dez wanted to get away in there. He wasn't too particular because we had heard Charlie Parker. And Dez, you see, Dez was playing his own way at that time when I first went to the band. And uh, we'd hang out. So we went to hear this band one night. And uh, they, and, Dez, and I'm, I'm listening to the trumpet players there. Me and Dez are sitting at the table together. And he's saying, listen to that. Saxophone player, John. He kept punching me to listen to him. So I listened to him, but I didn't hear nothing. You know, ran fast or something, but I didn't pay much attention. And uh, so I go back and listen to the trumpet player. So he would uh, punch me again. John, listen to that saxophone player. He, for some reason, he heard him. He heard how he could tell what he was doing, you know. But I couldn't tell what he was doing. Then uh, after that, why he would take Mills downstairs between shows, and uh, he would take uh, downstairs in the basement of here and uh, have uh, tell Milk what car to hit, and he'd run the flatted strips and flatted ninth and different things against it, you know, until he got it down pretty good. Then he had a solo on some of these days, and he got up there and tried to play that. And Cab was going to say, what the hell is that? So, this is, this is, uh, new. this is a different thing. This is something different. He said, I don't care what it is. I don't want that in my band. Don't play that in my band. So then, Dizzy, on the next show, he got up and played it again. And it was later, it was called Bebop, but we had no name for it then. So then he played it again with him, tried it, tried it, tried it. And things and so Cab said, Give that part to Jonah. So he gave it to me and I was glad to get it because I didn't have no solo at that time. And uh, that was the only solo that uh, we had. So he gave it to me, then he started taking me downstairs and showing me what this was and what he was doing, you know. And what Charlie Parker was playing, who later years we found out who he was. He was Charlie Parker, you know. Hmm. So then, uh, when I was Charlie Parker, it was a natural way of playing. Because we got back to Kansas City, maybe a year or something later, we was asking different uh, older musicians, uh, did Charlie always play like that and all that? No, they said, oh yeah, that was his way of playing. So when he was going to school, he used to come in and sit in with us at night, he played like that then. So, uh, but after they started showing it to me, then it got to sounding like uh, it might be interesting. So one day I got up and I started playing, and he said, you too? He said, I'm going to fire both of you. 
He's on my fire boat truck. So I stopped. <laughs> I stopped and went back the old Jonah way, you know. And, uh, so just the swing way, you know. Jonah's, but, Jonah's no fool. No, I stopped. Well, I liked it bad. I liked it, you know. And Dez was really young. He was younger than I was. A few years younger than me. So he, uh, when he fired him, he just kept it up until finally they uh, all got to playing together, him and Bird and Monk and all of them used to play in a place called Minton's here. Mm-hmm. And they'd go by that way and play, uh, play them kind of things with them, different notes in it. But uh, I never did uh, care too much for it, you know, me doing it. I, I used to like to listen to the other guys play it, you know, and how they would speed up the speed it up and all that. And this guy, so he got perfect with the thing. Yeah. Yeah, he got so he got perfect. He was so wonderful with that. Uh, and uh, but uh, I don't. Then everybody started doing it pretty soon. So, but I never did. Uh, I never got it down. I never was serious as, as he was. He was real serious when he first heard him. When he first heard Bird do it, he was. Got serious about it, you know, and, and but I never was. But well, then, we're very close friends. We were, uh, you know. Yeah. Even after he'd, uh, uh, after I had my own group, he'd come by sometime and uh, listen to me, and we'd talk about music, you know. We, we stayed friends for years. Um, after after you left Cab's band, you uh, you worked with uh, Teddy Wilson. Oh, yeah, after I left Cab, and see, we did the, well, Teddy would have, like, uh, uh, he would have, uh, like, a one-nighter sometimes, you know, for about six pieces, about six of and he'd always tell me to get the, uh, to get four guys together, and he's going to Syracuse or Rochester, going to play New York University uptown or somewhere else, some school or something. And we'd play that at night. And, I'd get, and he said, be sure when I've got a card. And I'd always ride with him. And he'd always pay me double for getting them in, you know, because I'd, I'd get them in that I knew he wanted. I knew he wanted me in a sax and a rhythm section uh, about uh, a bass and a drum, bass drum in him. And uh, maybe sax and trombone and myself, and we play it. And I get pick out some some good men for him that I know he'd like to that he'd like to play with. You know, so it was nice. Uh, but it would just be a gig here and there. Then at the same time, I started playing with a society band called Left and Lanny. Sure. And then was good. Uh, Good uh, uh, guy. We played, but we didn't play a whole lot of jazz. We played uh, show tunes, and that's why I got to like talk show tunes and things because uh, they used to play practically all show tunes. And then we go out of town while you get paid by mileage, also. Which I remember once we went all the way to Chicago, and the job only paid uh, $40, but $90 for mileage. <laughs> so that was for one night. That was great, you know. And uh, I enjoyed that. Then it had me and uh, an Indian fellow on trombone called him Big Chief. He would be playing Big Chief Moore. 
he'd be on trombone. So when the band would take a break, while we fell in, we'd go out there and be piano and drum, and me and Big Chief. You know, or it would be another trombone player named Herbie Green. He was a good trombone player, too. He, he, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he, he was a good, good trombone. I liked his playing. So he was, Les uh, and I had that. I played with them. And I used to like to play that gig because the money was good, you know? Right. And, uh, uh, and uh, we'd always fill in and while they would take a uh, break. And then when they come back on stage, we'd come back up there, too. We didn't need no break. So. Uh, then I see with him and Teddy Wilson. Then some other guys around. I would do, like, uh, that had, you know, one night until, and then, oh, I know when the cab broke up in 52, about a week later, Joe Brickson, who I knew in 52nd Street, mm -hmm. he used to be in one of them clubs, but 52nd Street had jazz clubs next door all the way for the whole block on east side of the street. And uh, so Brickson was being there playing somewhere, I forget what club he was in. And uh, so he called me when the cab broke up in 52 and asked me, going to the embers with him. And I uh, asked him, how many pieces? So he said, uh, just four, just a piano, bass, drum, and a uh, trumpet. And he said, I'm the only one allowed to take in a trumpet. He said, but you have to t play with a mute. So I said, I don't think I can do that. I said, uh, play with a mute all night. And I said, no, I haven't played with a small group in so long, four pieces. I said, I don't, I'm not sure. He said, well, look, I ain't worried about it. He said, uh, I'd like you to go in there with me. So I went in with him. We stayed four weeks. And it was nice. And the, 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 the bass player I had was Charlie Mingus. Mm -hmm. And Mingus didn't, uh, he didn't like, he wasn't too happy about the way the Bushkin played. Mingus wanted to play modern, I guess bebop is called. And uh, he only stayed a week and said he was going over another band. Okay, that was an interview with Jonah Jones from 1995. And what I love about that segment is it helps us understand what was next for modern jazz after the big band era, of course, was bebop. And having some of these firsthand stories about the development of that music with Milt Hinton and uh, Dizzy Gillespie playing in the Cab Calloway band that uh, Jonah witnessed firsthand, I think was very compelling and helps us understand what was next. You know, these musicians were playing all the time. I mean, every single night, sometimes four or five times during the weekend, these were very proficient musicians and they were wondering where to go. We, where can we go next? And free jazz and bebop were just around the corner to explore something a little bit different than such melodic music and danceable music. And it sort of was sort of the, uh, the natural progression for jazz. And it's kind of interesting to hear Jonah talking about that development during that time. So moving to our next section of this podcast, we're going to be talking about the band leaders and once again it's tough to just pick one because mm. you know there's so many great ones 
And for this segment, we picked Alvino Ray. So Dan, bullet points. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> let's see if we can hear some fun facts about Alvino Ray. Well, Alvino started out as a banjo player, and he was very frustrated with the fact that the sound wasn't as loud as he wanted it to be because he was competing with all these horns, right? I mean, in the big band, you could hardly hear the banjo. So he went and took his mother's uh, telephone and took the pickup out of the, I think it was one of those old, like, fashioned candlestick phones, if you remember, like, oh, yeah. you think of Abraham Lincoln or whatever. <laughs> Abraham, and, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, I do. And so he, he took one of those, uh, the pickup out of one of those, put it in the banjo, and it was like the first pickup ever put into an instrument. I wow. mean, this is 1927. Oh, so when you think about, like, the frying pan, the first electric guitar coming out in 1935, Alvino was way ahead of his time. But he only did it as a musician for himself and he didn't market it. However, people picked up on this and uh, Gibson later hired him to create a series of pickups, which is very interesting to me. Uh, side note, kind of uh, what I love about that is that uh, bring it back into the NAM family and the, and the products uh, of musical instruments, uh, but that was not his intent. And uh, he was very modest about all of that. Alvino later became, well, he, so he started off his banjo. He went on to steel pedal and pedal steel, um, those with pedals and those without. He developed uh, a whole series of pedal steel guitars uh, for Showbud and for some others. And basically his sort of thing was um, a, a new part of the big band era that we hadn't talked about, sort of a society band playing in ballrooms, but some of them called them Mickey Mouse bands because they had sort of a novelty approach. And his novelty was the pedal steel and mimicking the human voice. So it would be a lot of crying and whining sort of sounds. And, you know, he did Woody Woodpecker theme song and things like that that were kind of more novelty or Mickey Mouse-ish. Uh, but he also was actually a pretty well-schooled musician. He studied uh, classical guitar with Andre Segovia. I mean, you know, an amazing talent, kind of hidden behind these sort of funny novelty songs. He, uh, he married one of the King sisters, which was a singing uh, group of uh, siblings from Utah, and really propelled the rest of his career as an arranger and band leader for that group. Uh, the King Sisters had a whole series of television programs in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I think every Christmas there was a, a, a King Sister program and Alvino was the band leader. So he had a lot of different elements of his, his career. But the focus uh, of today's uh, installment is the fact that during this era, he was very much... Um, able to create a band for whatever the occasion was. So he would hire different musicians if he had a gig for a radio program because they had to be a little bit more crisp and clean. Uh, if he had a, a nightclub, uh, he could have a little bit more, you know, uh, jazzy people. Um, so he really had the ability to create a band on the, sort of on the fly, depending on whatever the circumstance was. And I think that really ushered in a whole lot of other bands that did the same thing. And he was sort of the, the first to do that. Another guy that he worked with was Horace Height, uh, who had uh, a radio program. And actually, he was the first host of a game show on radio, as a matter of fact, Horace Height and his Musical Nights. 
Um, and uh, Alvino played a very big role in that, you know, creating sound effects and that sort of thing with his steel pedal guitar. So um, was that in, in a nutshell? Or can I go on? I, th- I think that's pretty okay, good. That's <laughs> I think now we'll hear from Alvino himself. <laughs> so without further ado, here he is. I got into the orchestra b- b- band business and that sort of took away my um, guitar playing for quite a few years. There was so much business involved, and and I enjoyed that too. But uh, we got in, interested in, in big band music, and then with the working with the King Sisters, it was a, a a very pleasant association for our lifetime, practically. How do you, how do you uh, feel when there was an article um, in the Rolling Stones magazine, I think about uh, six months ago, um, where um, they were talking about Joe Pass and some of the other great uh, jazz guitarists, and virtually all of them were citing you as uh, an inspiration, as a, uh, a person who uh, paved the way for them, and as a result, they've created some amazing um, avenues of jazz and, and forms of um, uh, popular guitar. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's wonderful to hear you know if i could influence anybody it's wonderful those are great players of course and the great loss of joe pass leaving this planet is quite a sad deal i very admired his great playing who were some of the people that you were um, influenced by we were talking about some of them um in terms of the band um when uh, Horace Height um, asked you to join him, did he already have a guitarist in the band? Uh, he had a banjo player in the band, and uh, they couldn't keep him sober, so finally they got rid of him and I replaced him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's the story of how I got with Horace Height. And... How uh, my information here doesn't give me a whole lot of detail about your your stint with him. Was that an extensive stay on on his band? Well, five years is quite a long time. I joined him in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater, and uh, we went from there to Chicago, and we were on various commercial radio programs. And I left him in 1938. That was before television, before he got into television. But uh, I was on the air commercially all those five years with him on uh, Alamite and the Shell Radio and uh, programs like that. And, and then I, after five years, we had uh, we had quite a interesting association. And of course, I met. The King sisters, they were on, and, and then I married Louise in, uh, in 1937. And then, of course, when they left Horace Height and uh, went home to California, I left Height and went home to California also, and, uh, and we formed our band, our, our orchestra, uh, in 1939. And, and kept it 
until the war came along, and I went into the Navy in 1943. So we had quite a stint there. <laughs> what was your um, your feelings about Horace Hyde? What kind of guy was he? Well, he was a great personality and uh, not a great musician, but he had a lot of wonderful musicians in his band, and uh, he was a great salesman. He sold that orchestra to, to every place in the country and, uh, and was on the air every night, and we uh, had quite a strong following. And we made several records, but they weren't any big smashes of any kind, but... Uh, uh, he he wasn't uh, he was was not a hard was a hard person to work for for a lot of people. I got along with him fine, but he uh, he had his uh, bad uh, temper or, or sort of Jekyll and Hyde. He'd be beautiful one day and then he'd turn on people the next. But uh, I never had any bad association with him. We. Uh, we left a part of the good friends, and then down through the years, I did a couple of appearances with him. So um, a lot of people um, weren't too crazy about uh, Horace, but uh, uh, as I say, my relationship with was, was always quite uh, quite pleasant. And did you um, have an attention of? Um, starting up your own band immediately after after leaving him or is that something that just kind of formed no that wasn't our intention i just uh went home to california to take it easy and uh there was an opening at one of the uh, mutual uh, stations in los angeles and they had uh were figuring on hiring the king sisters and then they thought well i might as well join them and so they dropped the orchestra and uh, replaced their staff orchestra with the orchestra that I got together with the King Sisters. So um, that's how we uh, really formed the, the group that we've had for many years. So tell me a little bit about where the, um, the King Sisters actually started. Well, they started, uh, the King Sisters were from Salt Lake City and... Uh, Horace Hyde had heard of them and uh, asked. They were on the, the big radio station here, KSL, and then he'd heard for them and he asked them to join him in in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater. So they all, as a trio, they came out there and sang, not knowing whether they'd be a success or not, and they were immediately a success and. Uh, and so he hired them, and they were with him for well, about four years anyway. And then they were performing with you um, uh, until you left for the war, is that correct? Well, they were, they were performing on uh, Bluebird and Victor Records um, before we had a band. And, uh, and then when we formed a band, of course, they sang with the band and we recorded both separately and together on uh, Bluebird and and Victor Records and then when I went in the Navy in 1943 they continued 
uh, doing uh, television and radio shows. It wasn't television then, but uh, uh, they were quite active, went around the country and, and were performing, uh, both for the armed forces and for uh, various radio shows. And uh, They were with, um, well, I can't think of, they were with Artie Shaw on one trip, and then they were also with Les Brown, and then with... Uh, the professor, I can't think of his name. Ray Kaiser. Ray K Kaiser, and uh, she, they were quite active while I was in the Navy. Go ahead. Quite amazing. Uh, they, it seems like they had quite an, an extensive career as yourself. Um, when you came back from the Navy, um, did you reunite with the King Sisters and uh, another attempt at a band, or how did that work? No, we uh, the King Sisters didn't work with the band after the war. We uh, we formed a, a a great big band of which you'll have to hear some of the records that I, I'll send them to you. On the, uh, we had ten brass, really a swinging band, and uh, that was in December of 1945. I got out of the Navy, and we had several members from Artie Shaw's band that had broken up, and the great musicians of the country, and um, went on tour for several years uh, while the the big bands were accepted. Then when they started slowing down, we went to a smaller group and so forth, which is not something I'm uh, very proud of. I was uh, sorry to see the the decline of the uh, big bands, to tell you the truth. What do you contribute that to, the demise of the big band era? Well, uh, vocalists such as, uh, uh, um, well, name some of the great ones, like Sin Shore, Sinatra uh, and Sinatra, Peggy Lee, Peggy Lee all those. Uh, became big hits and the orchestra became in the background as accompaniment and they came so strong that it overwhelmed people a little bit and they sort of lost track of the big bands and then of course um, 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 sports came into the picture and night football and night uh, sports and, and high schools and everything it took away from the the romance of the dance band era because people started going to stadiums and things at night and that they didn't have a chance to go to dances anymore. And then, of course, when uh, Elvis Presley came in in the 50s and rock took over, the new era of people forgot the big bands and they went into the, uh, the era that's still holding forth today. <laughs> Are you encouraged, however, that there are uh, a resurgence in some respects to the big bands? Well, here and there, uh, there's there's a resurgence, and a person like maybe yourself that's entranced with, with big bands, and I think if people that have a little musical sense would appreciate big bands, I think they would, but uh, now it's become economy-wise, uh, quite an expense to get bands to go on the road. It used to be you get people $50 a week. Now they want $500 a week a person or more, 
and your living conditions are so high that uh, it's hard to promote a big band and have it stay on the road or to make a living. And uh, that's just my opinion. I may be way off on it. <laughs> Seems pretty accurate to me. Uh, things have changed a lot in that respect. So, um, what do you uh, what do you think were some of your um, your favorite, let's say, recordings? Some of the the recordings that really um, created the sound that you were going for. Well, it's hard to say. I I tried to use the guitar as an identification in the band. Um, it seems like I was one of the only leaders that used a guitar um, for a style, but um, I tried to use um, both the Spanish guitar and the pedal steel guitar as an effect instrument uh, to give it a new tone quality to a band. I don't know. We, we've made all kinds of records, and... Uh, uh, I, I can't just name one that that I feel is outstanding. The, the pieces that made hits were not my idea of, of good music. We made a very big hit on Deep in the Heart of Texas and things like that, which didn't show off the uh, beauty of the band, but it was a novelty. And um, so we are identified with things like that and not really good music, but We've had such wonderful arrangers down through the years that have made uh, great music for us, but a lot of the tunes uh, didn't catch on, like the um, half a dozen great hits of Glenn Miller, you know. All of those are will be remembered forever. And until you get into the multi-million selling record while you're dropped, a, you're sort of a lost cause. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it must have been a, um, a transition for you from going from um, hotels and gigs on the road to performing on radio and, and, and television and so on. Was that, was that hard to adapt? Well, I, I enjoyed the working in the studios. Uh, in the early days of studios, they did not have many guitarists that could read music or things, and I... I enjoyed working with uh, various Hoagie Carmichael and Jack Benny and uh, Phil Harris and uh, a lot of those shows, Bing Crosby and playing guitar behind them and uh, and then a lot of pictures, which was uh, very interesting to me. And uh, being associated with the great studio musicians, it was a thrill, of course. And then when we uh, did our recording, we'd pick these great men to play with us, and uh, and that was a thrill. You couldn't get them to go on the road because they were doing too well here, and they were they'd been on the road their whole life, and and were happy to settle down and have a family. So um, that that was a thrilling era that I was in too. Before we got into the King family television, and that was a whole new era again. <laughs> For, for my own personal knowledge, um, <clears throat> could you explain to me, maybe, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, 
The difference now, the pedal steel guitar is also something that it was a quite um, popular in, in country and western music. It, was that the exact same instrument I'm thinking of? Well, uh, it's a shame to call it uh, adopted by the country music people because it wasn't intended to be that way. The steel guitar with the pedals was to enhance and to prove to improve the Hawaiian steel guitar so that harmonically the chords could be uh, more beautiful and more um, more musical. And then the um, the cowboys, I keep calling them the, the country people, which are highly successful, I'm not putting them down, uh, they had all of a sudden they, they uh, adopted the guitar, the so-called pedal guitar, uh, for their effects in country music and uh, and it really it, it's it's a shame that it's just established with country because it's it's really a more musical instrument than the country people use it as and uh, I'm I'm trying to put out some records now to prove that because uh, in in a non-country vein but uh, uh, that's where I that's where I am in <laughs> <laughs> in my era today. I think you have accomplished that. I think there's some wonderful recordings of yours that um, express the melodic sounds of the uh, of the guitar in ways that I don't think have been duplicated quite personally. So um, that that's an amazing accomplishment, I think. Others have tried and uh, maybe have been successful in certain medias, but uh, in terms of what you did with the big bands, um, it was quite unique. Well, um, we we incorporated it a lot. With, uh, we tried to make the pedal guitar a um, a tone color along with the brass section and the reed section and the rhythm section to give it another color in a band. And we tried to get that across in various albums and. Maybe it'll catch on someday. Who knows? So once again, that was Alvino Ray. And Dan actually was just told me a fun fact during uh, that segment that Alvino Ray is actually the grandparent of the founders of Arcade Fire, an indie rock band that's still pretty prevalent in today's music. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Keeping it in the family. No doubt. So now we're going to move on to our final section of this two-part podcast. And it's the last, but definitely not the least... We're going to talk about the singers within these big bands. So who are we going to hear from? We're going to hear from Kenny Gardner and Martha Tilton talking about some of the songs that they sang, some of the bands that they traveled with. Dan, what can you tell us about singers in the big band era? Well, you know, it's really neat that we've separated all of these segments out, sidemen, songwriters, arrangers, and band leaders, because the singers really added the element, that sort of the, the whipped cream on top. Um, because there were plenty of instrumental hits, and they were very popular, of course, during this time, probably more so than any other time in American popular music. However, the element of the singer really helped, I think, not only present that song, but engaging the audience, right? Sing-alongs and uh, songs that were hummable uh, were really kind of a major part I mean, I think of probably the the anthem of the big band era that Doris Day sang with uh, Les Les Brown and his band of renowns was called Sentimental Journey. And that is really the big band in one 
three-minute song. You know, it's got every element. It's got the sentimentality of it. It's got the remember when, you know, element that a lot of uh, folks that remember the big band era now reflect back on. It has great arrangements, great sidemen, soloist, and of course the singer who comes in and just nails it, you know, just makes us all want to take that sentimental journey with her. And so the compelling element of the singer, I think, is interesting because it developed during the time of the bands. When it first started, um, people like Martha Tilton and Kenny Gardner and all of them, really, in that in those early days, even Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday would wait for the break, just like a musician would wait for his time to stand up and play a few notes on the saxophone. The singer would come over to the microphone, sing a couple of phrases, and then disappear again. It was that was the singer worked for the bands. And then Sinatra showed up, and all of a sudden the bands worked for the singer. And that sort of change was really, really interesting because not only did the singers become superstars like Sinatra, but it also changed the way the music industry approached what was selling. If they had a small print that said Tommy Dorsey on the label, and then you have to squint to see Frank Sinatra, they realize people are going in, where is Sinatra? Where is Sinatra? So all of a sudden, they switched it. So it's Frank Sinatra with, and then small print, Tommy Dorsey. And so all of a sudden, Tommy Dorsey, who had a very big ego, didn't like this and was trying to get contracts with the singers at the same time the recording industry and the record companies were trying to get contracts with the singers. So this change, I think, led to one of the next steps in American popular music, which is an era that I like to call the sing era, where all the singers were who you were talking about. You went into the record store looking for Nat King Cole. Tony Bennett, Frankie Lane, Patty Page. Those were all the names of that day. And you didn't mention who the band leader was anymore. It sort of had this big shift, which of course is part of the sadness of the end of the big band era because those band leaders were so compelling. Um, but that was the next step. And I think Sinatra had everything to do with that. When he played with Tommy Dorsey and uh, Harry James uh, a little bit before that, people really took notice. And because of his popularity, he allowed other singers, not only the singers with him, like Joe Stafford and the Pied Pipers, but other singers in other bands to get more recognition so that they had more than just a few bars. They might have a whole solo song and the band is very quiet in the background. So that change, I think, was very, very compelling. Um, and so the two folks that we're gonna be hearing about uh, today or hearing from, um, one is Kenny Gardner. We're going to start with him. He sang with uh, his brother-in-law's band. He married one of the Lombardo sisters and, and sang with Guy Lombardo for very many years. He started out in radio in 1936, and his biggest hit was with Guy Lombardo in 1940 called Enjoy Yourself. became sort of a theme song of his. He served in uh, World War II, came back and sang again with the band. And for those who are not familiar with the Guy Lombardo band, um, he really was the ultimate in um, society band, schmaltzy music, you know, the really low key kind of, of music, but very, very popular. He had hundreds of hits and song after song. And 
staying power. I mean, he performed a band that toured all around the country up until the year that he passed away in 1977. I mean, years and decades after most other bands were completely gone. So, uh, of course, for the younger folks out there, his theme song was the reason that we all know him, and that's the reason that we hear from Guy Lombardo every single year. It's Old Lang Syne and uh, the theme for New Year's. So, um, but but uh, Kenny, um, what's great about Kenny is that he really embraced that whatever that style was, and that's what I think I liked about these singers is if their band was singing kind of schmaltzy music in society. They jumped right in it, and they made the very most of it. And if you have the chance to look him up, uh, he really had a very unique st- singing style that fit perfectly with Guy Lombardo. And speaking of perfectly fit, nothing is more compelling, I think, than Martha Tilton's voice on the Benny Goodman hit called And the Angels Sing. I think that is probably one of the top five big band songs in my book that really defined that era. But she did so much more than that. Uh, She was actually on stage uh, in 1938 when, I don't know how they did it, but the producers arranged to have a jazz concert at Carnegie Hall. And they really kind of went through the history of jazz. They had somebody up there playing like Big Spiderbeck and went through the swing era. Benny Goodman was there, Count Basie, Harry James, and good old Martha Tilton. And she sang a song called Lock Loman that apparently tore the house, house apart. Um, but she was um, sort of the, the quintessential female singer. And she watched that transition of being sort of just a little side note of the band to a superstar and having a big, big hit record and then having a recording contract afterwards. Uh, she was with Capitol from 1942 to, I think, the end of that era, 1949. Um, and her biggest hit was in 44 called um, I'll Walk Alone. And um, then she even got into radio and had her own television program. Very, very uh, famous uh, for her era. And I think compelling to listen to as well. What did you What did you glean from her, Michelle? Just a delight, like very humble, very happy. You You can tell that she's looking back on her career and the things that she she's done, and she's just happy. Awesome. So first, we're going to hear from Kenny, and then Martha. This girl that I told you about. Uh, well, incidentally, I later married her, <laughs> and uh, she's still around here. <laughs> It happened to be Golly Bardo's sister. <laughs> and now we use the word golly. We say Golly Bardo. There's a reason for that. I'll tell you that story later on. But, uh, no, that was it. I, uh, I went to work. Uh, I, I didn't like, uh, I just didn't like the New York, what have you. And, 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 uh, in those days, dance bands were the biggest thing, you know, and there were some big ones. And uh, Lombardo was about as big as you could get. So uh, I, I took that, and uh, it took me a couple of years to, to calm that guy Hitler down, but uh, other than that, I... <laughs> <laughs> other than that, I, I made it all with... Uh, with Guy Lombardo's band. Huh. So, now, did you start off as a singer with with him? 
uh, or you were primarily a singer? With no, them. I was primarily uh, working with NBC uh, on their on their sustaining staff. I had been that doing that out in California, right? And uh, they they sent me to New York, and uh, well, I had a lot of fun with a lot of people and all that that are today big stars. Now, of course, you know, they're all retired, mm-hmm. but uh, I got them all and. Uh, and so on. Uh, they, uh, but it still was New York, and uh, I, I don't know. But anyway, I preferred. I was right on the verge of going back to San Francisco, or back to uh, San uh, to L.A. from here. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I had met this girl. Her name was Elaine, <laughs> and all that sort of thing. So uh, she. I, I don't know. Uh, there's a there's there's a hidden part in this thing here somewhere. I, I think she pulled a few strings or something. And uh, guy hired me, and uh, that was it. I took a little time out uh, to clean up that mess over in Europe. Uh, that took about three and a half four years. But uh, then I came right back to the band again afterwards. Now, when did you record with the band? Was that from start to finish? All oh. the time, to- all the time I was with him. I, I think I was with him about four days. And we went in to record. Oh, really? Yeah, we just uh, uh, <laughs> in that connection. There was a couple of things that went on. I, I heard the band; they were doing things. See, don't forget the the original nine members were all from Canada. And uh, I think the Royal Canadians, and I, they they had to Canadian interpretation of just what the hell was supposed to be music, you know. And uh, it, it took a little while to get used to Lombardo's uh, uh, style and so on, but uh, it was it was fun and it was obvious. I remember I told you, told you the phrase nobody liked us but the public. Uh, you'd have to be stupid. You would have had to be stupid to deny that whatever the Lombardos were doing was not right. You know what I mean? The public liked it. See, you didn't, you didn't have to worry. But the, the public was liked it. And year after year after year after year after year, come out, the Lombardo was the lead band, you know? Dance band. That was all through the years and uh, almost up to the very end. And what was it about that style? I mean, what what was so unique about it? The stand the style? Yeah. I mean, was it the way uh, they put the um, uh, the instruments together, or was it the arrangements? No, I mean, no. no. We changed we changed the instruments on, on a number of occasions. That is, added certain instruments. And, uh, Did they have a constant arranger throughout the whole time? Oh, uh, we the Lombardo, the Lombardo band uh, was. Uh, you had there was fortean of us in the orchestra that did the playing. All right, we had uh, a manager, and we had uh, two uh, arrangers and a copyist. And. Uh, we were just talking the other day. There were only two outsiders that were ever permitted to uh, uh, even attend a Lombardo rehearsal. Hmm. The uh, uh, one of them, one of those fellows, was a friend of Carmen's, a fellow that wrote uh, uh, 
was a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He was an outsider, but one uh, in, uh, he was a songwriter, very successful. And then there was another fellow that uh, was a song plugger, but we never played one of the songs he was plugging. <laughs> but uh, uh, he liked us, and as a matter of fact, he practically lived with Carmen at times. Hmm. But uh, <clears throat> those were... It, it was a unique uh, organization by any and all rooms. Would you know that we would uh, take a take a vacation off, and Hell's Bells after about the second or third day, you'd see us ganging up. We'd go to their house, or they'd come to this house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just the boys in the band. They're just uh, it was uh, a very unique, uh, uh, very unique outfit compared to the. Some of the bands, you know, the, the average life of a, of a band, they, uh, the band that was a success, would be like two or three years, you know. That doesn't mean that they'd fade out completely, but they, they would be over their hump after about three years. Right. Well, hell, the Lombardo lasted almost 50. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> Amazing. And God help you if you changed anything. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, is from beginning to the end, once we had rehearsed up a tune and once the public had expressed the fact that they liked it, you never changed a note. Hmm. It just it just stayed had just stayed right there. At the uh, well that's that's the way it went. It's right down to the and every once in a while they call a rehearsal and say, Hey wait a minute, somebody's doing this, somebody's doing that, what's that? And then we'd work and say, wait, put it back the way it goes. That was it. Nobody liked us but the public. <laughs> now, did you uh, exclusively stay with the Lombardo band? That's all. That was the end of it, right there. I started it there. And uh, now I, I worked out in California in the studios doing sure. some recording in there, there, but that was something else. But right. after I joined Lombardo, I never worked with anybody else. We got a point. We were playing out in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And the phone rings, and it's the guy that then owned the Yankees, the baseball team, the Yankees. And he says uh, uh, something about, uh, guy promised me that you guys had come here to play something. Oh, yeah, to play the opening. The, yeah, that to play the opening game in the the, the ball. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, yeah, for the Yankees. Uh, yeah, the Yankees. Yeah, that's right. Now we were clear out there in South Dakota. Guy says, "My God, that's right. I forgot about it." Okay. So what we did, <laughs> we were scheduled then to go the next day to somewhere over in Rochester, Minnesota. So, of course, the Yankees and stuff were playing in New York. So what we did was we chartered a plane, flew to Sioux City, changed planes, flew to Omaha, changed planes again and then flew to Chicago, changed planes and flew to uh, uh, Cincinnati. No, no, Detroit, no. What was it? West. What's West? Uh, I don't know. But anyway, we we finally got to to <laughs> New York, <laughs> and then went out, played one song, one song, and they sing and they Star Spangled Banner or something, 
turned right around, went down, got on an airplane, and flew back out to Chicago, <laughs> and then flew up to this place up there like that. We played one tune at the thing, and then we started going to sleep. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm telling you that that uh, that one was that's that's a typical thing of of uh, what what we had to do. The, uh, uh, when guy made a promise that we'd do it, we did it. Period. Did you uh, did you want to uh, sing as a small child? Is that is that? Well, um, I grew up in a very musical family. My mother played the piano, and, and my dad had a very good singing voice. In fact, everybody in the family was rather musical, so I grew up with a lot of singing around me. <laughs> and uh, I never really intended to become a professional singer, but um, it just sort of happened that way. You know, one thing leads to another. And before you knew it, there you were. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> At a very young, tender age, I may say. That's great. And and it just worked out so that you were actually paid to do something you like to do. Well, yes. I, you know, when you start out like that, something accidental happens and somebody hears you and then, then an agent gets a hold of you and one of those things. And, and uh, I started singing... Um, with a small band here in uh, Los Angeles, sort of on weekends, you know, mm -hmm. when I was in high school. And uh, everything sort of evolved from that. I that see. got me started. Oh, okay. And it just, one thing led to another. Someone uh, listened to you and, and uh, you... Yes, I was doing a, a, a little uh, radio show on a small station, a uh, radio station here in L.A., and um, uh, for free, <laughs> he, he asked me to come down and sing with his, his little band on this radio station, and I thought, oh, that would be a lot of fun. So I used to go down after school with my girlfriends on the bus, no doubt, and we'd go down and, and I would sing on this little radio station. Well, I did that for several weeks, and this agent happened to hear me, and uh, he came down and wanted to sign me up. He says, I think you have a great voice, and would you like to do this and that? And, of course, I was thrilled to death. So he got me started. Wonderful. Uh-huh. And then, then one thing led to another. I went to a larger radio station, and then I got with this, this band, and I was with them for a little while. And, and uh, you know, that's the way you get started. But in those days... You had more opportunity. There, uh, the radio stations had a lot of music on them, and it was all live. You know, they had small bands or groups that, that played at radio stations. And uh, you, you just had more of a chance to get out and do things, I think, than you do now. And were most of these uh, uh, opportunities for you to sing popular songs of the day? Oh, yes, yes. That's what I did. Just, you know, just the songs that were popular during that particular time. Uh-huh. I can't remember exactly what they were. And but, just uh, putting your own style to it. Yes, uh-huh. Was that, was that a difficult thing? I've, I've, I'm, I'm not a singer, so I've, I've always kind of been curious. If you hear a, a recording by someone that, uh, on a particular song, um, is, it, is it difficult to stray away from what you heard and put your own personal stamp into it? Oh, well, you always had your own style of singing. 
and uh, you didn't always hear it on the on a record or a song of my we used to buy sheet music you know and my mother would play the sheet music and uh, and uh, we would all sing it you know I would sing so I didn't really hear an awful lot of of singers in those days but they were mostly men singers anyway you know uh, Russ Colombo and right. and uh, people like that but uh, you you had your own particular style and and yours has actually been um, on different articles I've read classified as being very sweet very innocent very uh, <laughs> unique well if you say so <laughs> <laughs> you don't agree with that huh well I don't know <laughs> hardly <laughs> uh, a really good friend of mine, Dick Jurgens, once told me that he said if I ever had the opportunity to hire uh, one particular uh, singer, it would be Martha. And, and he, you know, he is a, just a, a, an amazingly sweet man himself. Speaking yes. of sweet, and uh, did you did you ever have the opportunity to work with him? No, I never did. I only um, I only sang with two bands actually. One was this little band, local band in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Hal Grayson, his name was, and the other one was Benny Goodman. Those are the only two bands I actually sang with. After I left Benny, I went out on my own and I did radio for a number of years and theaters and things of that sort. Records? Yeah, you had a recording contract. I had many recording contracts. The first one was with, um, uh, oh, great, Capitol. Oh, okay. <laughs> Capitol Records. I, uh, I joined them when they first started and made um, and recorded for them for a number of years. And I... I uh, made records for Decca and uh, Majestic and, oh, there were quite a few record companies wow. in those days. Coral. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I'm wondering if you know if any of those, um, those recordings are available on, on CD these days. I don't think so. I sure hope they'll get their act together. <laughs> well, I, I really don't think so. Uh, not that I know of, unless, say, Capital decided to come out with some CDs on the things that I did for them. Right. Uh, they would, that would be up to them to do that, you see. So, so far, I know they haven't, but uh, uh, it would be nice if they did. I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> I bet not. Yeah. There, we do have a few um, gems of yours available on CD, and, and those are the ones that are actually often requested. And... Um, it includes one of my all-time favorites, which is Andy Angel Sing. Oh, yes, uh-huh. That was, uh, well, I was best known in the record industry for that record that I made with Benny and Ziggy Elman, you know, playing the trumpet, that wonderful trumpet solo what that he played. a great solo. Oh, yeah, just magnificent. He was a marvelous trumpet player. He really was. And you, you were with the band for a while. Did you uh, did you get to know uh, Ziggy and some of the others? What do you mean, did I get to know them? Well, um... I worked with the band for about <laughs> two and a half years. How could I not know them? <laughs> well, I, I was with them every night and every day. <laughs> I guess that was a polite way of asking if you got along with them. <laughs> well, yes, I did. I got along with them. Uh, uh, Benny had a wonderful band at that time. When I was with him, it was... Uh, in 37, 38, and part of 39, 
and uh, with, with Harry James and Ziggy Elman and Gene Krupa, you know, mm -hmm. were with him, and it was a marvelous band, and we we had a, a I had a marvelous time working with them. Although it was awfully hard work, we uh, we worked an awful lot. Yeah, and Benny's pretty much known as a taskmaster. Uh, that that probably didn't ease things up. Well, he kept us on our toes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly did, but he was a wonderful man. Well, the end product certainly was amazing. The what? Pardon me. The end product that he produced was certainly amazing. Oh, I should say so. Hmm. Just just marvelous. Does it uh, does it frustrate you that you are primarily known for um, for Andy Angel Sing? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, um, it it really helped my career a great deal to uh, to have you know to have something that was that uh, a big hit uh, like that record was. It it made people know who I was, you know. Right. Uh, for, for a long, long time, and it's still popular. People still like to hear it. It's a great song. Yeah, it surely was. Did you know at the time while you were recording it that it was uh, going to take off like it did? Oh, no. In fact, I didn't think it was going to be a hit at all. Oh, really? <laughs> I remember uh, when we went into the studio to do it, um, it was in the wintertime. It, was in, uh, in, in, it wasn't in New York City. It was in Camden, New Jersey. That's where we recorded for Victor. Uh -huh. And uh, it was cold and, and snowy, and we went in the studio to, to do this record date. And Johnny Mercer, you know, who wrote the lyrics to Angel Sing, right. he hadn't completed the lyrics yet. So he hurried up and wrote something down, and, and we said, all right, we'll make a take. So we took a first take, and so when we finished it, Johnny said, well, I don't particularly like that line. Let's do it over. I want to change it. So he changed the line, so we did it again. Well, that went on for I don't know how many takes. Huh. And poor Ziggy Almond's lip was giving out. <laughs> and I was getting hoarse from thinking that So we finally got it right. Johnny liked the words and everything was fine. And I remember on the way out, I, I was going out with Harry James. And as we were walking out the door, I said, gosh, you know, after all that work, Harry, uh, I don't even think that's going to be a hit. Hmm. <laughs> and I was dead wrong. It was a big hit. It was a smash. And I'm sure you were requested to sing it quite often on the on the road. Oh yes, yes. I always included it in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But after I left Benny, I came back to Los Angeles, and uh, I was on staff at uh, NBC, and had my own my own show. And I did a lot of other shows on NBC at the, for the next few years, which was great because I was heard, you know, all right. over. I'm sure that helped out. Yes, it did. And um, and you continued to perform, of course. No, not now. Well, uh, at the time you were doing the the. Um... Oh yes. Well, I was. Uh, that's what I was doing. I was doing radio shows. Mm -hmm. That's performing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Singing. I had one called uh, Martha Tilton Time, and uh, that's where the Lilton came in. You know that. Lilton sort of stuck. Lilton, Martha Tilton. Right. And uh, the writer on this 
show said, gee, you know, you kind of have a lilt to your voice. Why don't we call you Lilt and Martha Till? <laughs> so, that's where that originated, and it stuck. You know, it's one of those things that just happened to never leave me. So that was Martha Tilton uh, wrapping up our podcast on the big bands, and that was the uh, the singer's era. I did want to say one more thing, because there's always one more thing I want to say, um, and that is if you have a chance and you want to go and listen to some music based on this, you're all fired up, of course, check out some of the people that we've talked about. In, in particular, I think Martha Tilton's greatest record, I mentioned Andy Angel Sing, You've Got to Play That by Benny Goodman, but also do yourself a favor and listen to her version of how are things in Glockamora, which is from Finian's Rainbow? Uh, she just really, to me, shows the depth of a singer in that particular tune. Very cool. So, part two has concluded all about the big band era. Part I think we did a pretty good job, actually. I do too. Yeah. I mean, Dan did tell us a lot of stuff, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good thing because he has it all in his brain and we got to get it out in the open so everyone knows about it. It's important stuff. Well, I really appreciate your guys' enthusiasm for this. I mean, obviously, this is near and dear to my heart and I'm glad I've been able to glean a little of that excitement over to you and hopefully our listeners uh, to keep this alive. You know, just the, these guys entrusted me with their stories and I'm so proud to share them. So thank you for that. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you like what you've heard today, f- please leave us a review and subscribe to us on iTunes. It means a lot and helps the podcast out. Other than that, we will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>